Paul says, verse 12, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And Father, we humbly pause and just ask once again for your Holy Spirit to assist us as we open the Word of God. We ask, Lord, whatever it means for each one of us in this room this morning, that your Holy Spirit would prepare us accordingly so that we can receive and hear exactly what it is that you want to say to us, and more than that, Lord, what you need to say to us through this portion of your word. So, Lord, may what you inspired and intended this passage to say, may it speak to us personally and directly this morning. Bless your word by your Spirit's ministry among us, and teach us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, how well would you say this morning you are doing in the Department of Relationships? I thoroughly believe from what I read in Scripture that that is an area where God desires for us not only to succeed, but I think all the more as Christians, it should be an area where we are able to excel, where we're able to do above and beyond what those apart from the Lord in the world are doing in the department of relationships. See, when we choose to follow Jesus Christ, to enter into a relationship with him where we ask him to save us from our sins and we submit our life over to follow him as the Lord. At that point, the Bible teaches we are adopted spiritually into a family, into the family of God. And the word family indicates relationships that we're a part of and relationships involve learning how to relate to other people who are a part of the family that we're also a part of. And that's what this section of Scripture addresses for us. It supplies very uh, spiritually inspired, yes, but by the same token, if you look at it, very practical, practical nuts and bolts instruction as to how we ought to do relationships regarding relationships among the church, both with other people and a relationship with God, instructing us how to properly relate in the midst of those different relationships. If you were to outline the section of Scripture we're looking at, primarily dealing with relationships in three main areas. Verse 12 and 13, as we can see, address relationship with spiritual leaders. Verses 14 and 15 address relationships among one another in the church family. And then verse 16 to 18 address relationship with the Lord. So let's look at that together. Verse 12 and 13, he then begins, first of all, to talk about how we're to relate to leadership. Spiritual leadership is obvious. He says, verse 12, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. He says to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And then he says, be at peace 
among yourselves. So he begins by giving instruction here to the congregation regarding how they're to relate to, how they're to interact with the established spiritual leaders within the church. Notice there in our text in verse 12, the very first thing he says as he begins now this very practical section is he says there, we urge you. Now, when you urge someone, that's an indication that something has a high level of importance. We use the word urgency. That's the concept there of when you urge someone. Paul here, he's not demanding, but he's saying, look, what I'm saying, I'm making a pressing appeal out of personal concern because this happens to be important. And remember, as we've talked about, Paul the Apostle planted this church initially, the church of Thessalonica, but as we've said, he then moved on rather quickly afterwards. The church is established, it's continued on. Paul's now writing a letter back to this church. But I bring that to your attention because that means this, that right now currently as Paul's writing these things to them, he's not part of the existing current leadership in the church of Thessalonica. I bring that to your attention for this reason, because what Paul is writing here in verses 12 and 13 in no way comes from a self-serving motive. I mean, here Paul is writing about, hey, esteem your leaders, appreciate your leaders, love your leaders. Listen, Paul's not writing this from a self-serving motive because he's not one of their current leadership. So this isn't Paul the Apostle here in some distorted way trying to subtly encourage maybe a pastor's appreciation dinner the following Sunday or something. That's not what this is. This is Paul by the Spirit of God as someone who planted churches, pastored churches, understands how New Testament Christianity and church life is supposed to operate in a healthy way, understanding God's design for what's healthy and most profitable spiritually for God's flock, making a strong appeal to a congregation to relate properly to the leadership that God has supplied for them there in their local fellowship in the existing church of Thessalonica. He refers to leaders, look at it in our text there, as those select individuals, Paul refers to them, as those who are over you in the Lord. In other words, those select individuals who God ordained and called by his spirit to raise up and to give spiritual authority so they could provide oversight and care and counsel and teaching and instruction and leadership as shepherds for the flock. And notice he identifies the leader's God-given spiritual authority. He says, those who are over you in the Lord. Now, a lot of times when the word authority comes up in today's culture, and even I think among the church, quite honestly, people almost, you know, they have this unhealthy response to authority and order. And I'll tell you this, authority and order, though it has gotten a very bad stigma, justifiably so in some senses, authority and order is an important component to all sectors of life. Authority and order has a necessary and healthy purpose when it is recognized and operated as intended. It's essential, authority is, for families. It's essential for there to be a healthy family with parents and children that authority exists in the home. It is necessary that there be authority in a school system where things would be absolutely chaotic and out of control. Authority is necessary in the military that there are people who are under giving orders and there are people who are submitting to orders and following orders. Order and authority is critical in corporations, in businesses. Authority is important in society in the same manner. Spiritual authority 
is important in the institution of the church, in the family of God spiritually. Now, authority is never something that should be abused inappropriately. And let me just say this morning, if that has been your experience where you have suffered at the abuse of someone else's wrong use of authority, I apologize to you for that. I'm sorry you had to experience that, whether it was abuse of authority in a home or abuse of authority in a school or abuse of authority in a job or even maybe the worst, the abuse of authority by someone who's supposedly a representative of God. I apologize for that. But let me just say together with that, don't let that distort your perspective of the value of authority because authority is intended by God to be something in our lives, to have authority over us, it's intended by God to be something that's helpful for us, that actually is protective for us, that actually supports us. It's a practical demonstration of God's loving care and wisdom that he actually places people over you and I in the things of the Lord to be a covering for us, to be a help and an assistance, to watch out for us, to help us walk a safe and stable and successful spiritual life. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 13, 17, he says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. And notice he says there in verse 12 in our text, he says to recognize these individuals. Recognize, he says, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. The word recognize means to become aware of something. Here's what's interesting. The term that Paul uses there in the Greek, recognize, literally means to perceive. Uh, it, it indicates that you don't know something because you've been told, but it's something that you can perceive by observation. And I think what the Bible is indicating here is it pertains to really spiritual leadership in a healthy way that God has intended it to. That spiritual leadership and spiritual authority is never going to be something that must be demanded. When somebody has genuine spiritual authority from the Lord, they're never going to have to demand that they be respected. They're never going to have to throw their weight around or in some way sort of you know, manipulate people to be followed or respected or submitted to. Rather, if their authority is genuinely from the Lord, it is going to be something that people will sense in just who they are. People will sense in who they are and how they operate, this seems someone that the Lord has put to be in the front to provide oversight, to provide leadership in a healthy way, and people will naturally be inclined to respect them. They'll be inclined to follow them and, and to embrace their authority in a healthy way. Paul does here in verse 12 and 13 give to us some indications of true spiritual leadership. Two things I think particularly we can see. First thing he mentions is that true spiritual leadership is marked by servanthood and sacrifice. It's marked by servanthood and sacrifice among God's people. Do you see what he says in verse 12 regarding leaders, those who are over others in the things of the Lord? He says, these are those who labor among you. Again, a true spiritual leader is someone who's investing time and energy and effort, who is laboring side by side, but yet at the same time caring for the people of God, shepherding them. And notice he says they labor among the flock. True leaders are going to be among the flock. Do you know one of the clearest ways to tell someone is a shepherd? They'll be around sheep. 
At times we say, I want to be in leadership. I want to be in leadership. Well, that's interesting because shepherds hang out with sheep. You say you want to be in leadership, but you're never around the sheep. Why do you want to be in leadership? See, shepherds are with sheep. It's what shepherds do. So shepherds are going to be those who are inclined to always want to be with the sheep. They always want to be, when the sheep are gathered and assembled, they want to be there because they're inclined to want to serve them, to do something, to labor among them. Again, true leaders are among serving and laboring among the flock of God. Notice, shepherds are around, leaders are around. They're not absent from the flock. They're not seeking to be above the flock in some ivory tower or some prima donna where they get special perks and exceptions and they just show up and do their performance and then stay absent the rest of the time. That's not a true spiritual leader. The Bible says that a true spiritual leader is someone who's laboring, humbly serving among the people, working hard to take good care of them. And see, that, Paul understood, is what Jesus always taught because Jesus taught servant leadership Jesus said the greatest among you should be the servant of all the one who's willing to labor and oftentimes when you look around it is automatically always finding ways to labor to serve and to help a second thing we see is an indication of spiritual leadership is not only marked by servanthood and sacrifice but it's also the Bible says here marked by speaking the truth into people's lives Marked by speaking the truth in people's lives. Because of the spiritual responsibility and authority, Paul says there regarding leaders in verse 12, also that they, he says, admonish you. And that word admonish means two things. It means to instruct, but it also does carry the implication of to correct. And, and again, because of the spiritual responsibility, the stewardship of those in authority in the Lord, that's what they're supposed to do. Those in authority, whether it's a parent, whether it's a supervisor at work, whether it's a spiritual leader, are supposed to instruct and to speak into people's lives to give guidance and understanding of what is true and correct what's wrong. But they're also there to admonish, to sometimes strongly challenge and admonish people. Hey, what you're doing is it's not right. Or you're heading down a wrong track or to correct. And again, this is not something of abuse of authority. This is actually a part of the proper exercise of authority to speak into people's lives. So Paul here explains how Christians then in verse 13 should relate to spiritual leaders, to those who have authority in the Lord among them. He says, verse 13, first of all, to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Again, the idea there is holding and showing appreciation for those in leadership because of their value and importance for people's lives and for the church assembly. He says, esteem them very highly in love. Another translation renders that, hold them in high regard out of love for them. You know, I think a healthy church should have a congregation that doesn't despise their leadership and doesn't lack respect for their leadership, but honestly should be able to hold a high level of admiration for their pastors, their elders, their ministry leaders, that there should be a sense of, hey, we respect them, we value them. And notice that the primary uh, reason for that is not because of the leader personally. Do you see what the text says there? Look at verse 13. <clears throat> He says, esteem them very highly in high regard in love. Look at verse 13. He says, for their work's sake. Take notice. Of that. He doesn't say, look, the reason you should really esteem these people is because they're really great people. 
Because the reality is, is they're a bunch of sinful knuckleheads just like you are. It's just by the grace of God that they're in the role they're in and they're trying to stay one step ahead to provide a little bit of leadership to somebody else. He says, no, esteem them foremost for the work's sake. In other words, because of the work that they do. Because of what they are rendering in service, the kind of service, the labor that they provide, it's something that's sacred. It's something that has eternal value to it. It's something that has a heavy responsibility connected to it. And indeed, it can be, spiritual authority and leadership, a difficult job, a draining job, carrying the burdens of God's people, hearing of tragedies, walking with people through difficulties. And a person in leadership, again, is never going to be perfect. I'm convinced one of the ministries that myself and every pastor has is a ministry of disappointment. It's a ministry of disappointment where people recognize, and not even a purposeful way, and not in a hurtful way, where you realize that he didn't meet all my expectations. Well, maybe that's because Jesus is supposed to meet all of your expectations. And because Jesus is who you should be foremost looking to and not some man with a robe or a, a title or a position. Again, not that we should not be examples and care for and do the best of our ability. But again, the ultimate thing is no leader is going to be everything for us or please us all the time. But the respect we render, the respect I render for the pastors, the leaders in my life, it's because of the work's sake. It's because they provide a sense of leadership and, and a covering over me in the Lord and the movement of churches that I'm a part of that keep me safe, that keep me in a place where they help me to keep my bearings spiritually. And notice he says as well, verse 13, one other thing as a proper relationship with spiritual leaders, he adds on there, verse 13, he says also, and be at peace among yourselves. Interesting, that's connected to spiritual leadership and how to relate to them as a congregation. Here's what I sense Paul saying. You want to really bless your leaders? Try getting along with one another. Be at peace among yourselves. It's almost as if Paul's saying, if you really want to bless your leader, he says, then do your absolute best to get along with all the other people around you. Because here's what happens. If not, what leaders become burdened with is refereeing. And they become like referees. And a lot of spiritual ministry, truth be told, Paul talked about it earlier in the letter to the Thessalonians, a lot of spiritual ministry, when you serve in ministry, you realize it's a lot like parenting in a sense, loving and caring like a mother and tenderly you know, nursing people along and helping them and feeding them and assisting and caring for them. And sometimes like a father being more stern and firm and giving counsel or protection. And, and, and here's what happens. Sometimes spiritual leaders even have to parent in that sense because there's sibling conflict. Do you know what they did to me? Do you know what she said? Do you know what they're doing? And, and all of a sudden, you, you're, you're, you're refereeing sometimes even really crazy, petty stuff. And you're functioning more like a referee rather than a pastor and a caretaker. And so he says, do you want to bless your leaders? Try and, try and be at peace with each other. Try and live peaceful with each other. Coexist. Get along, kids. <laughs> that's, that's the idea there, Paul's saying. Well, he goes on, verse 14, to then speak now and say, look, leaders have their role. They have their responsibility. But we all, as a part of the family, share in the ministry. 
And now he speaks about relationship and how we relate to one another, showing we're all in the ministry, not just those who are spiritual leaders. He says, verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. So he now gives a challenge and exhortation to the brethren or the cistern as well included in that. And he gives here some short injunctions or short exhortations of how to go about that as we relate to one another just in the church family collectively. The first thing he says there, verse 14, look at it, is he says we need to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, warn those who are unruly. Now that word unruly there is a term that speaks of being careless or it's literally a term that was used for stepping out of line or stepping out of rank. It often was used in a military sense how when a troop would be marching one direction, it would describe a soldier who wasn't keeping in rank with the rest of the troops. They were being unruly. The idea is they were marching to their own drummer or they insisted on marching their own way when everybody else was marching in this direction. They were getting out of line, rebelling off track. And again, to not stay in rank or not stay in line, unfortunately, endangers both the individual who's unruly and it endangers the rest of the troop if someone else is being unruly. And sometimes believers, let's be honest, can get a little unruly. Sometimes people in God's family for different reasons and times can start to get a little unruly, a little careless, maybe a little rebellious spiritually. And they start to step out of line. They start to wander off track. They don't want to live in line with the teachings of Scripture. They start to get a little unruly. And the Bible says when someone starts to do that around you, a brother, a sister in Christ, as a fellow comrade, as someone who's a part of the same local troop, he says, look, you should warn them. Hey, what are you doing, man? You're stepping out of line there. You're starting to get out of rank. I'm concerned about, you know, we're moving in this direction. That's not the direction that God wants us to go. And that's not a direction that's consistent with the marching orders of this book that we all live by and march to. You're getting out of line there. Where are you going? And to warn them, to caution them of the danger and the harm of beginning to get unruly and the consequences that sin can bring and rebellion can cause. Again, sometimes people live in rebellion even to maybe the, the direction or vision of, of the church and they begin to create disunity or disruption in the sense, well, I'm not going to go that way. I think we should go this way. And again, the Bible says that that's not good. And when we see someone beginning to get unruly, God says, you should warn them. You should caution them. You should speak into their life a word of warning because you love them and you don't want to see them suffer the consequences of unruly behavior. The second thing he says there in our verse is to comfort the faint-hearted. That word faint-hearted there, when you look at the term, it literally could be translated from the Greek, the original, little-souled. Little-souled. The idea here, it's describing someone who sort of easily gets unsettled and worried in spiritual manners. Someone who gets quickly discouraged, maybe at the smallest resistance, they're very prone to just kind of give up and uh, quit a lot more easily to fall back. It refers to perhaps those maybe who are always worrying about the security of their salvation all the time 
and they're little sold in the sense that they're always fearful and under condemnation and thinking maybe they've lost their salvation because they've made a mistake somehow and are falling prey to that uh, or maybe wrestling with trusting the promises of God and they just can't seem to take God at his word and to believe that he's going to do what he said in his word or maybe they continually want to quit Every time things get a little bit difficult or they always see the dark side of every situation and and, and deal with condemnation and, and depression and so forth. And he says concerning these type individuals that are faint hearted more easily, he says when you see someone like that, he says comfort somebody like that. You warn the unruly, but he says you comfort the faint hearted. The term there literally, it's a, it's a compound word, means to come alongside with your mouth. The idea is that you come alongside them and you speak to them in a comforting way, uplifting words. You find ways to speak into their life compassionately, encouragement and comfort. You come alongside and tenderly reassure them, showing them how to press on. That though they're faint-hearted, that, that you know, look, hey, don't faint. God's with you. God loves you. He's going to get you through this. And, and you come alongside and you, you bring your mouth in a compassionate way alongside them where they're at and you help them through uplifting words not to grow weary. The third thing he says there that we should do amongst each other is to then uphold the weak. Now, that word weak could apply to those who are weak and feeble physically. But the, the reference there more directly is a reference to being weak spiritually. So the spiritually weak would be those maybe who lack maturity in the faith, those who are prone maybe to fall prey to temptation and sin more frequently. They seem to give in more quickly to temptation. Maybe it's a Christian who's struggling with consistency and being faithful spiritually and they just seem to be weak spiritually, sort of anemic spiritually so they struggle being consistent in their spiritual life and we're told here to do what to come alongside and to uphold people like that to do what we can to strengthen them to uphold them and to maybe give a little extra attention to them to assist them in their weakness to help bring them to a place of progression where they become spiritually strong and where they become stronger and stronger to where ultimately maybe they can stand on their own and then you go look for somebody else weak to maybe kind of help and nurse along and to assist in that way. I, I picture the illustration here when I think of this concept of uphold the weak of kind of how when my kids were learning to ride a bike and you know that very dangerous job dads when they're learning to ride a bike where you run behind them and you hold the seat as they're trying to figure it out and ultimately you, you hold the seat and risk your own life in, in the whole process because there's no way they can keep their own balance or they would just crash. So you uphold them by holding their bike seat and ultimately, but what's the goal? Is it to run behind them the rest of your life holding the bike seat? No, it's ultimately to get on the place where you let go. Hey, look, you're doing it by yourself. You're doing it by... And to ultimately let them complete and that's the idea here. Uphold the weak Uphold the weak, but ultimately with the goal of, I'm going to help you, I'm going to help you. But look, you're doing it yourself now. You don't need me as much now. And now look at you. Now you're standing all on your own. Now you're strong in the Lord. Why don't you go help somebody else weak now, and I'll go help somebody else weak now. Rather than letting weak people fall prey to the attack of the devil and capitalizing on vulnerable, weak sheep. Finally, Paul says in verse 14 as well, as another exhortation, he says also, be patient with all. Now, that's interesting because our human nature 
is to do what? To tend to become probably impatient when people are unruly and when they're faint-hearted and they're weak or stumbling. Unruly people often irritate us. When people are being faint-hearted, that may kind of frustrate us. What's the matter with you, man? Why are you always fainting all the time? Or when somebody is weak, you know, when somebody's weak, they can kind of drain you. And maybe they might delay you and kind of hold you back because you're having to hold them up. Look, God's saying here, with the unruly person, the faint-hearted person, the weak person, you've got to be patient with all those kind of people at times. You've got to be willing to not get annoyed in your humanity, but to be gracious to those individuals and to help them. Another instruction he gives regarding our relationships with each other, verse 15, is he says there, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So the idea here is not seeking retaliation when wrongs happen to us and there are offenses and things that happen among the church family. Again, the church, the Bible is very clear, is not to be a place, though the world is, for always trying to settle scores. It should be something different among the church. Are we going to fight? Are we going to annoy each other, step on each other's toes? Yes. Can I tell you as a pastor, it's the same way as raising kids. He touched me. She said something mean to me. They didn't include me. Look, we're sinners, man. I think this is the best dysfunctional family going. It's the best thing out there. There's not a dysfunctional family that doesn't exist on this planet, but this is the best thing going. But there are going to be times when we're going to hurt one another, anger one another, upset one another, misunderstandings, cop an attitude, get upset. Look, but, but the Bible's saying, but we shouldn't be harboring bitterness over those things. We're ever allowing or permitting there to be subtle ways that we try and still get our little retaliation in, in the way we treat someone or how we react to a situation. Instead, because we're people with a relationship with Christ, God says we should rise above that stuff. Yeah, we still deal with it, but guess what? It's dealing with that, here's the key, that develops us spiritually. See, we love Christian lectures. Oh, yes, speak to me. Preach about love and forgiveness. Oh, that's deep, esoteric, Pastor Tony. What? That is profound. And then God says, great, you got the lecture. Now it's time for the lab work. Practice forgiveness. Practice Letting go of a root of bitterness. Practice saying, God, I am so angry and so bitter. If you don't yank this root of bitterness out of me, I'm going to defile everything. It's lab work. That's where we develop. So the Bible says to us here, we should respond out of Christian obedience, letting the Holy Spirit empower us to obey Scripture. And he says, not rendering evil to evil to anyone, but pursuing instead what is good. Again, this is to be a family and a family, a Christian spiritual family where love flourishes and where forgiveness flows repeatedly as is necessary. Remember Peter's dialogue with Jesus. Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Didn't say people in the world. My brother, when they sin against me. He thought he was spiritual. He said seven times. He's probably nudging Matthew. You think of that, seven times. Seven times, Lord? Wow, Peter, you are deeply compassionate, most forgiving guy among all 12 disciples. What did Jesus say? 70 times 7. 
Matthew the accountant was probably calculating that's 70 times 7 that's 490 times and some of the disciples because they're like you and I they probably even kept track that's 483 this guy's got 7 more and then I'm killing him right so it's like you and I the idea there was an indefinite number don't count stop counting there's never a time when we say forgiveness is done no more forgiveness for you because that's not how God forgives us. His forgiveness is free. And notice it's not just refraining from retaliation alone, but pursuing love. He says, but do what's good. So it's not just refrain from retaliation, but he also says we should proactively pursue what's good for ourselves and for all. In relation to what? When things happen and offenses take place. So I should also not just refrain from retaliating, but I should also actively say, you know what? What would be good for myself in this situation that's become kind of tense here? What would be best and good for me in regards to this? You know, you know that person who offended me, what would be a good thing for them so that this doesn't like gasoline on a fire get worse? That I don't say, or that maybe I do to show love, to really try and win back someone once there's been hurt or offense. And he says, these are the important things. Again, sounds like what Jesus said. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you. I wish he did not write that, but he did. So that's why I had to read it to you. Well, I'll pray God helps us with those things. Thirdly, he then in verse 16 to 18 talks about relationship vertically. Goes from the horizontal with each other to vertical relationship with God. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again, notice, here's another one of those few places in the Bible where specifically told, verse 18, this is the will of God for you. We often ask, don't we? I wonder what God's will is for my life. And we're concerned about, I want to make sure I'm in God's will. Well, here's one of a few occasions where the Bible specifically says, this is God's will for dummies. Remember that Microsoft for dummies books, that whole series? <laughs> this is like, this is God's will for dummies. Do you want to know God's will? The Bible says, here's a couple simple things that you can employ that you can know that you're in God's will if you're doing these things. We get three commands or directives here they are be joyful, be prayerful, and be grateful. Or you could say, in essence, celebrate, communicate with the Lord, and be appreciative before the Lord. And again, all three of these things, if I were to be honest as a man, they don't come naturally. They're not automatic to my humanity, but these are things that I have to make a conscious choice, even as a Christian, to obey by faith and obedience. But when you do, God honors that. And God says, when you do then you're walking in my will. Then you're obeying the will of God. Well, let's look at him. The first thing he says there, verse 16, he says is to rejoice always. Now, the word rejoice means to be full of joy or pleasure or enjoyment. And the word rejoice is a celebration word. So when you hear the word rejoice, it should bring to your mind celebration. So the Bible's saying to regularly be in a joyful attitude of celebration. And you may say, as I say in my humanity, come on, that is just not reasonable. I mean, that, that's not even realistic. True, apart from an important reason to always rejoice. I don't think people in the world can rejoice always. It's impossible because they don't have a valuable reason to. I'll be the first to admit, even as a Christian, by nature, this world and all of our experiences we go through 
Don't give us automatic reasons to always just rejoice. You may be the most optimistic person in the room by personality, but life still throws you a curve, does it not? And there are trials and there are tragedies and there are deaths and there are sicknesses and disease and there are broken marriages and loss of jobs and issues that we go through. And no matter how good you have it, life is not always a picture perfect party. It doesn't give you a reason to always just naturally celebrate. Yet James 1 and 1 Peter 1 says that we're actually to be joyful even as we go through various trials. And the struggle is this. How is that possible to simultaneously be maybe grieving or struggling in some difficulty of life and yet at the same time be joyful and celebrating? Yet Paul says in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 6.10, that we can be sorrowful yet rejoicing at the same time. How's that possible? Simple answer. You have to have something greater than your trial to celebrate. Paul gives the answer to that in Philippians 4.4 where he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. See, the only way you can celebrate and rejoice in the midst of unpleasant circumstances is to have the key of how to rejoice always, which is that you need to have something beyond your trial to rejoice in, which is the Lord himself. And this is the blessed benefit for you and I as a Christian. You have the same trials as the world. People die in your life. You lose a job. You may get cancer. Your marriage may fall apart. Your kids may backslide and break your heart. And you're going to go through trials and challenges and tragedies. But God says, but you still have something to celebrate. You always have something that in the midst of the darkest hour, you still can celebrate something. Jesus said in Luke 10, rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. We can rejoice in who God is and what he's done and who he is and heaven's glory that awaits us. How does that work itself out practically? My own personal opinion, I think the way this works itself out practically is by regularly and repeatedly entering into times of worship where we rejoice in the Lord through the celebration of worship. To participate in celebrating God through worship always results, I find, in joy as the outcome. I don't know how it works, but I'll tell you, by golly, it does. Psalm 95 says, Oh, let us come and sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And I don't understand how it works, but there's this really wonderful thing that life can stink. It can be hard. You can be in the midst of one of the darkest hours of your life, circumstantially or internally inside of yourself. And Psalm 16 says, In his presence is fullness of joy. Acts chapter 2 says you will make me full of joy in your presence. And you can be struggling hard, but yet you come and get alone with God in your car or somewhere and you just start singing and worshiping the Lord and all of a sudden, this amazing thing starts to happen. Some of the weight starts to lift and you're able to have a brief reprieve from all the heaviness and the hardship and the difficulty and to just have a little break from it as you rejoice in the Lord or as you come with God's people and you just start to sing and worship and all of a sudden this amazing joy can come into your soul amidst what you're going through so he says rejoice always secondly he mentions pray without 
ceasing there in verse 17. So we're also at part of God's will to be prayerful. The idea is to be communicating with the Lord, recurring frequent times of talking with God in a relationship. So important to remember, prayer is not a religious practice. It's a relational privilege. The reason why a lot of people, I think, shy away from prayer, don't want to pray, have no interest in prayer, is because people almost view prayer as like a religious practice. Well, that's what you got to do if you're a spiritual person. you got to say some prayers once in a while. Th- that's a bizarre concept. Prayer is a relational privilege where a child has a father who loves them and actually is always interested in them. Some of you had a father who was never interested in you. He was never around when you would have loved to have talked to him. Or you have loved to have said, Dad, I need help with something. Dad, can I talk to you about something? Listen, God's an ever-present, loving, caring Father who always wants to talk. And like a father-child relationship, just like a child with their dad, look, I remember my kids when they were little in the church when we were pastoring back in Pennsylvania, they didn't care who I was talking to. They would interrupt anybody if they wanted to talk to me. I mean, we had to teach them and coach them. But they understood the relationship concept. There was no special protocol to approaching dad and talking to him. They understood, that's my dad. I don't care if you're crying and your world's falling apart. I want to talk to him. And he always wants to talk to me. And see, that's the blessed privilege for us with God. That God wants to listen. God wants to help us. Prayer is just honest conversation with God like a child talks to their parent openly, directly expressing yourself and God wants us to live in intimacy and dependency upon Him and one of the ways He produces that is through prayer. Now just like human relationships, we can sometimes start to ignore people and not talk to them as much and that has a detrimental effect on our relationship. Same thing's true spiritually. We can begin to neglect God. And one of the greatest indicators of a deterioration of our spiritual life is a neglect of prayer. So your level and frequency in communication with human relationships, that typically defines the level of intimacy in your relationship. And it also can deepen the level of intimacy in your relationship. And the same is true spiritually in regards to our relationship with God. Imagine if, again, my kids said to me, Seven o'clock in the morning strikes. They come running up to me and say, Dad, okay, it's seven o'clock. I'm ready to talk for a few minutes. Talk for till 7.07 or so. Okay, Dad, that's it. That's that's it. I'll talk to you tomorrow again at seven o'clock. If I got time tomorrow and I'm not too busy. And they never talk to me the whole rest of the day. Who would want that kind of relationship? I would be depressed. I want to have recurring, continuous conversation. Listen, that's why he says here, so important is prayer. He says it's God's will. Look at the term there. He says, verse 17, that we not just pray, but pray without ceasing. The idea there is constant recurring prayer. Not necessarily uninterrupted prayer, but just constant recurring prayer. All throughout the day, being conscious of the presence of God, asking for his help and what you're facing, what you're handling, whatever you're dealing with. Just conversation that recurs all through the day. It's like dialing up God in the morning in a phone call and then just staying on the line all day long and having recurring periodic communication, listening and talking to God in in your work and, and caring for your children. Lord, help me so I don't lose my mind on this little kid before my husband gets home. God, help me. Lord, help me. I'm dealing with this guy at work or in the midst of a conversation. Somebody asks you a question. Lord, give me wisdom. Three words. That was prayer. How do I answer this person? 
in whatever you're doing, walking or activity, look, in everything you're doing, God just says, include me in it. Include me in everything. Be conscious of my presence with you all day long and talk to me. Include me. You know, this week ahead, great way. Do you want to walk in God's will? Let this be a conscious discipline to just seek throughout this week ahead to just include God in conversation in everything that you're doing. And I mean everything. To just talk to God all throughout your day and whatever's taking place. The third thing he mentions regarding God's will is not only to be joyful and prayerful, but also to be grateful. Verse 18, he says there that in everything give Thanks. The idea is appreciative before the Lord. Being thankful and appreciative should be my natural expression before God. Now, I'd be the first to admit in this room, sadly, again, I don't naturally gravitate towards that. I tend to gravitate towards the opposite. Being discontent and complaining and dissatisfied and failure to be grateful. And we automatically seem as human beings to focus on what we don't have rather than what we do have. And one of the greatest areas of neglect is probably genuine thankfulness. And I propose that probably one of the reasons that causes a lack of faithfulness in us as human beings is this selfish sense of personal entitlement that we wrongly hold inside of ourselves, where we think for some distorted reason that we just deserve certain things. And America just feeds that. The sense of entitlement and expectancy. I mean, we, we literally think I mean, you talk to a young kid nowadays. They feel like it, you know, they feel like it's child abuse. They don't have an iPhone, right? I mean, I just, oh, are you kidding me? I'm an American kid. Certainly, I should have an iPhone. That's expected. My parents are neglecting me if they're not. I mean, there's this, and we do this as human beings. We have a sense of expectancy. Life should be a certain way. It should not include this. It should include that. We should have this relationally, materially, circumstantially. And we have all these expectancies and we assume we deserve certain things. And that's evidenced by the fact that as human beings, we show very little appreciation and we're very ungrateful people naturally. Even as Christians so often. But he says here, the will of God is that in everything we would give thanks, that we would become more grateful that we'd seek to be more grateful, realizing every good and perfect gift is from above. And you know what? Wow, maybe I should take a little inventory. There are plenty of things to be grateful for that I can be thankful and appreciate for. Now, it's one thing to be thankful for good times and the blessings and things God supplied. But what do you do when you're confronted with unpleasant things? The painful experiences, the difficult circumstances, when you experience a loss or a disappointment. Well, notice what the Bible says, please, there in verse 18. He says, in everything, give thanks. Please notice he doesn't say, for everything, give thanks. See, God's not unreasonable. Certainly, I can't give thanks for everything. Lord, thank you that... You know, I lost my job, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that I got cancer. God's not being unreasonable, but he's saying in everything, while in the midst of it, and this morning, some of you here in this room may be in some really troubled waters. And you're in some really difficult days. Maybe you are in an extremely dark hour. Maybe you're dealing with an incredible disappointment. Maybe you are still nursing the wounds of some horrible, painful thing that happened in your life from years ago. That still plagues you. This means despite the distressing things we're forced to go through, as a child of God, you can walk through that difficulty differently. 
than everybody else who doesn't know God. Because you know, you know that the Bible says to you that all things will work together somehow ultimately for the good because you love God and you're called according to his purpose. So if that's true, then I can be thankful while in my situation because I can say, Lord, thank you that you have a plan in all this. Lord, thank you that it's not out of control, though it looks that way, it is still under your control. Lord, thank you that you're going to be with me through this and I'm not going to go through it alone. Lord, thank you that through this, you're going to develop me in my character and make me more spiritually strong as I struggle through these times. Lord, thank you that though this looks horrible and impossible, I thank you that you're still able to do things above and beyond what I could ever ask or imagine because you have power and you're not limited. Lord, thank you that you may be protecting me right now from something I'm not even aware of and that's why you allowed this to protect me from something that I'm not even aware of that would be more destructive for me. Lord, thank you that my life now is not all that I have to have to hang on to, but that there's something more. There's something beyond this life called heaven to one day experience. Father, thank you for your word. 